The Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, as Holly was explaining, tries to do multiple things, which is to raise awareness about the issue, not just so the victims have some support, but also so that people might think twice before doing things like this, before ruining someone's life in this way. And we're also trying to encourage technological solutions and encourage innovative ideas about how to put a stop to this type of behavior. But the other important component of what we do has been to change the laws, because right now the vast majority of states do not have any explicit criminal statutes that address non-consensual pornography. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams in Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And before we introduce today's topic, Bob, we want to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at www.goclio.com. Well, in recent months, a number of states have begun considering the question uh, of passing legislation aimed at stopping revenge porn. This has become a nationwide problem where individuals are posting intimate media of former significant others online without their consent for the public to see. And uh, not surprisingly, 90% of the victims are women. And the consequences, of course, reach well beyond the digital world into the real world. And Bob, here to discuss this topic with us today, we welcome Dr. Holly Jacobs. She is the founder, president, and executive director of Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, which is the parent organization for End Revenge Porn Campaign. She is a national commentator and a writer on the subject and holds a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. While pursuing her graduate degrees, she became a victim of revenge porn and has been and has since dedicated her life toward providing resources and advocacy to victims of online harassment. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Dr. Jacobs. Thank you so much for having me. And in addition, we're going to be joined today by Professor Marianne Franks. Marianne is a vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, and she's an associate professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law. She has her law degree from Harvard Law School, and prior to her teaching career, she had both her master's and PhD in modern languages and literature as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. As part of her continuing efforts with the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, she's been working with state legislators to help them draft legislation against non-consensual pornography. Welcome to the show, Professor Franks. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And Bob, before we get started, I want to let our listeners know that we received an email from Senator Spiro from Wisconsin has indicated that Wisconsin anticipates being the next state to pass a revenge porn law. Let's turn to Dr. Jacobs. Our first question is for you. For the benefit of our listeners who are not familiar, what is revenge porn and how did it affect your life? So basically, revenge porn is the distribution of nude or sexually explicit photos or videos of someone without their consent. I mean, right now, it's just it's happening on the internet a lot. It affected my life because I was actually a victim of this, and it completely changed my life path. I mean... Basically, I, I got my PhD in industrial organizational psychology, and I had planned on pursuing a profession as a, an industrial psychologist. And now 
now look at me, you know, I'm an activist and an advocate and the executive director of a nonprofit that is geared at helping victims of this and other forms of online harassment. Personally, I mean, it, it really opened my eyes to the existence of online harassment and the fact that discrimination and violence against women is still very prevalent in our society. So that's in a nutshell how it's changed my life. Oh, and I also had to change my name legally because of this, just to try to escape all of the harassment that ensued. Well, as you've mentioned, one of the outcomes, I guess, of this is that you've started the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative and also the End Revenge Porn Campaign, which I guess is a, sort of a, a sub-project of the larger initiative, or at least your first project. What is your organization doing to fight revenge porn? Well, one of the things that we're doing is trying to raise awareness about this issue by speaking out to the media about it, by speaking to victims and helping to put them in contact with media outlets so that we can really put a face or several faces to this issue and just show people that this is happening and it's something that needs to be addressed. We're also doing research on the issue just to, to put some statistics out there that express just how widespread it is. And we've been going around speaking at schools and events and conferences, just trying to raise that awareness. So we're doing that. But on the other side, we're also advocating for legislation and advocating to have revenge porn criminalized in the U.S. at the state level as well as the federal level. Well, Professor Franks, you've been involved with creating anti-revenge porn legislation for over a dozen states, uh, New York, Wisconsin, Maryland, and apparently you've been successful in Maryland. How did you get involved and what are these laws designed to do? These laws are designed to deter this conduct before it happens. As Holly's explaining, it's very difficult when you've experienced something like um, this form of abuse to know where to turn or what to do, and the consequences can really be devastating. The Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, as Holly was explaining, tries to do multiple things, which is to raise awareness about the issue, not just so that victims have some support, but also so that people might think twice before doing things like this, before ruining someone's life in this way. And we're also trying to encourage technological solutions and encourage innovative ideas about how to put a stop to this type of behavior. But the other important component of what we do and what I've really been focusing on has been to change the laws. Because right now, the vast majority of states do not have any explicit criminal statutes that address non-consensual pornography. So what I've done in my capacity as the vice president for the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative has been to draft model state and federal language. And what we've done with those drafts is, in many cases, it's the legislators themselves from these various states who will reach out to us and say, we read the draft, we care about this issue, we'd really like your help as we go forward and trying to make sure we get a good, effective law that's constitutionally sound. And so that's what I've been doing for every state that's interested in developing one of these laws and has asked for our help. I, I do the best that I can in trying to show them what we've learned so far and give them recommendations for the strongest possible language on the subject. Could you just run it down for us? Which states at this point have revenge porn laws? Which states are considering it? And is there anything happening on the federal level? Yes. So right now there are four states that have some type of law that would cover some forms of non-consensual pornography, and that would be New Jersey, California, Texas, and Alaska. And there are now, depending on 
which count you go by, there are about 14, between 14 and 18 other states that are currently working on anti-revenge porn legislation. And we are currently working on federal legislation with, among others, the, the office of Representative Jackie Spear. I'm assuming the need for this legislation is the fact that this activity is not necessarily a crime under existing law. I know that in New York recently there was a case that was thrown out. I think it was the first prosecution, criminal prosecution of a revenge corn case in New York because the judge said it, nothing unlawful about it. I mean, is that why we need legislation? That's a really good example of why we need legislation. What happened in New York was pretty much what advocates have been saying for some time, which is that even in states that have quite comprehensive anti-surveillance laws or really robust privacy laws, there's a gap. And there certainly was a gap in New York. And it's one that Assemblyman Bronstein has attempted to try to fill with his legislation. And the gap is that even though it's unlawful for someone to tape somebody without their consent, it's not unlawful for someone to take a tape of someone and disseminate it without their consent. So in the case that they were looking at in New York, there was someone who had taken these pictures, he obtained the pictures allegedly consensually, so there wasn't any argument about that, but that he took these pictures and posted them to his own Twitter account so that everybody could see them or anybody who saw his account could see them. And he sent the pictures, these were of his girlfriend, to her sister and to her employer. And what the judge pointed out is that if you're looking at a harassment charge, this doesn't really fit because it usually entails some sort of direct contact with the victim. And he never directly contacted her with those pictures. He sent them to other people. So the judge's ruling was very interesting in that he seemed to note that this was reprehensible behavior, but he also had to deal with the fact that according to New York law as it stands now, there wasn't any particular criminal provision that this person had violated. How do people go about getting these pictures taken down once they get put up? Is it possible to even get that accomplished? Are there still pictures of you, Holly, on the internet, or have you gotten them all down? Unfortunately, that's the reality that I've had to accept, especially, you know, launching a campaign like this and kind of being at the head of it and leading victims to justice is that I've put my name out there as a victim of this. So my name is probably one of the ones that's the most Googled. My pictures are probably some of the ones that are the most downloaded and shared. So... I honestly haven't Googled my name in about six months just because it never helps me. Anytime that I, I still haven't gotten over it. Anytime that I Google my name and I see those pictures associated with it, it's just completely devastating. And I just want to crawl back in bed and pull the covers over my eyes. So unfortunately for, especially for people like me that become a public person in this fight, the pictures are very, very hard to get down because people are constantly Googling them, downloading them, and sharing them. For some people, if you catch it very, very early on, there are some services out there that can help them to get the material down and make sure that it stays down. But, you know, as it is, the old adage that once it's up on the internet, it's always going to be there kind of applies. And I have a feeling that in the future, just because it's becoming such a big problem, not just with revenge porn, but with all kinds of defamation, that in the future, technology will advance to the point where we can get things down. And just because it's up there on the internet doesn't mean that it's up there forever. Right now, it is very difficult to get material down. And it's really hard for victims to get the material down because that usually entails them going online, seeing this material, documenting it, and being traumatized over and over and over again, and then having to go through this lengthy process of filing takedown 
notices with the webmasters, following up with them and making sure that they actually followed through and took the material down. And it's no guarantee that it's going to stay down. It's like people say that this is kind of one of the most heinous games of whack-a-mole. You take one down and it pops up in three other places. Holly, I'm wondering, my understanding is that in your situation, criminal charges were initially brought against the person who posted these photos and then were dropped at some point uh, and the prosecution was dropped. What will a criminal statute do for victims in this case? How does making this a criminal act uh, help the victims uh, from your perspective? In my case, they tried to take the cyber stalking laws in Florida and, and apply it. And even though the police were able to trace the postings back to my ex's IP address, they told me that because the charges they were bringing against him were just misdemeanor charges, it didn't give them the authority to go in, seize his computer, and analyze it and prove that he was beyond a reasonable doubt the person that was doing this. So that's why we are advocating on some level for these crimes to result in felony charges, just so that police do have the authority that they need to go in and collect the evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the suspect is the perpetrator. But we need laws that specifically address this problem because my case, it took me a year for it to get picked up by the police. And, you know, in the end it was dropped, but it took a lot of persistence. And honestly, it it eventually just took me and my mom going to a federal legislator's office in Tampa, Florida, and showing them documentation of all of the harassment that I was enduring and begging them to help me and set up a meeting with the sheriff. And and even then, when we had a meeting with the sheriff, they were going to turn the case down and say, there's nothing we can do. And it eventually took my mom standing up and just screaming at them and saying, does my daughter have to kill herself for you guys to pay attention and pick up her case? And I just broke down, and that's when they said, okay, we'll see what we can do. And eventually my case was picked up. But as you can see, even that didn't work out. So we just we need some sort of solid option for victims in the criminal realm because most victims are of the same age that I was. And maybe you know they're in college or they're pursuing a graduate degree or they're just starting out their first job, and they don't have the kind of income that you need to be able to hire a lawyer to represent you in a civil case. Marianne, do we need federal legislation to handle this? Because it seems that, you know, the internet is obviously international, but this piecemeal legislation state by state doesn't seem to really solve the problem anytime soon. If we really want to take the phenomenon of non-consensual pornography seriously, we are going to need federal legislation. But that isn't to suggest that the state-by-state approach isn't very important. As you point out, because so much of this type of behavior now takes place on the Internet, it obviously is going to make a lot more sense. It'll be a lot more clear if we have federal laws on the subject that can address no matter where in the United States the conduct arises. But as a general matter, we also need to make sure that we're not narrowing our focus too much because even though nowadays what we hear about is revenge porn online, that's not the only way that it can happen. Some of the early cases of revenge porn had to do with ex-boyfriends and angry husbands taking DVDs of sex tapes and making lots of copies and putting them on every car in their ex's neighborhood. 
So if we had a federal law, that wouldn't be able to reach that type of behavior because there's no interstate commerce there. So we definitely need every state to be protecting its own residents um, when it comes to all different forms of this type of behavior. But we obviously, in order to attack not only the, the original posters, but also the people who are deliberately soliciting and facilitating this type of conduct, we certainly do need the federal legislation because this is the part that's somewhat new that you really didn't see 10 years ago is that revenge porn is an industry. Not only do you have the vengeful, spiteful, bitter ex-partner, but you now have people who want to monetize this. You have people who genuinely enjoy using unwilling participants in their pornography. So that's a little bit different from what we've seen before. And what we're really going to need to respond to that is every state has its own protections and a federal law in place. And speaking back to something that Holly was saying about the position that revenge porn victims find themselves in, we need the criminal penalties because we need to deter this behavior from the very beginning. The fact that people think this is no big deal or that this is something they can do for entertainment is really the only way we can shake people out of that belief is by showing them this is serious enough to be considered something that is criminally punished and that you could actually face serious consequences for doing it so that people will not do it to begin with. Because even in the best case scenario, if you have a, a victim who's brave enough to come forward, has the resources to come forward, you're still going to be in this endless cycle of trying to take down what's already out there. So we really want to be sending the message socially and otherwise that this is unacceptable, destructive behavior. And before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Bob Ambrogi, and joining my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I today are Dr. Holly Jacobs and Professor Marianne Franks from the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative they're working to fight revenge porn in the United States. Mariana, what about the First Amendment implications of this? I know that the ACLU, for one, has raised concerns that revenge porn legislation could infringe on First Amendment rights. They've called for a fairly high standard. I don't think they're opposed to revenge porn legislation, but they're saying this legislation needs to be carefully crafted so as not to infringe on First Amendment rights. What do you say to that? I think that that is absolutely correct. We do need to make sure that any time we introduce legislation of any kind, whether that's criminal or otherwise, we want to make sure that we're protecting First Amendment values and principles. So I completely agree with the idea that when we're dealing with this area, when we're dealing with expression, we need to have narrow definitions and we need to have carefully thought out exceptions where necessary. And I think that's exactly what we've been trying to do in these various states and at the federal level. 
So if we're trying to figure out a smart non-consensual pornography statute, we take all the lessons that we've learned from similar categories or other types of harmful behavior and we apply them here and not treat this differently because it happens to deal with sex or because it happens to deal with nudity, which I'm afraid in some cases is what's holding people up about this. We have lots of different categories of what could be called expression that people aren't so quick to raise First Amendment issues about. If you think about identity theft or credit card theft or surveillance laws or doctor-patient confidentiality or lawyer-client privilege, these are all categories in which we say there's certain things that should not just be disseminated without consent. And we recognize that in many instinctive and legal ways. And so my only concern is that we not single out non-consensual pornography as somehow being more of an affront to First Amendment rights or more of a danger because it really isn't. Holly, I'm sure that you've gotten some reactions to the request for legislation and perhaps even for the prosecution of your situation that don't do it in the first place. How do you respond to that? I just say that that's absolutely just the same as telling a rape victim that they shouldn't have been wearing a a short skirt or that they shouldn't have had so much to drink. It's just a reflection of the victim-blaming mentality that is so ingrained in our society. And I wasn't really aware of it until I became a victim of this. And all I say back to that is that, you know, we live in a society now where technology is very integrated into our lives. We use it to connect with our family and friends when we're overseas, when we're not in the same city. So why should it not be okay to also use that to connect with somebody in an intimate relationship when you might not be physically in the same space as that person? I mean, in my case, I was in a three and a half year relationship with this man. We were dating long distance. It was a very serious relationship. We loved and trusted each other. So I never really thought twice about it. You know, I trusted him. I certainly brought up the fear that this could be shared. And he assured me that he would never do such a thing. And I, I totally believed him. So it's not a bad thing to use technology to connect with someone in an intimate relationship. We need to be focusing on the fact that people are, are using this kind of material to ruin other people's lives. And that's where we should be putting the blame. Marianne, what are the uh, liabilities of a website that posts uh, this content under current law? Are they protected under the Communications Decency Act? And and what will the legislation you propose do regarding the liability of those sites? Well, as things stand now, Section 230 immunity only applies to websites that are acting as intermediaries. So in other words, when they're facilitating a space where other people, third-party users, can post content. So if we think about YouTube or Google or Facebook, that's kind of what we're thinking of as far as intermediaries go. Where they don't have protection is if someone who operates a site like this then participates in the content, that if they themselves create some of the content or they editorialize it in a substantial way, then they lose that immunity because Section 230 immunity only applies when you're acting like an intermediary. So existing laws that affect websites that are engaging actively in this type of conduct, they could actually reach those particular types of websites or spaces or media platforms that are operating in something other than an intermediary fashion. Then you have the question of a federal criminal law. If non-consensual pornography became an aspect of federal criminal law, it would basically be treated the same way as all the other federal criminal laws that we have. For instance, child pornography, or you could also compare it to copyright because that's something else that Section 230 does not protect against. 
So all that it would mean is that you would treat non-consensual pornography very much the same way you would take other types of violations of federal criminal law, which is to say there's no Section 230 defenses that you could raise against them. Why can't you bring copyright claims against the people that post these pictures? Obviously, they don't have consent. Right. So it depends a little bit on who took the picture, and it depends on the particular mechanics of the copyright claims. So if you've taken the picture yourself, you do, in theory, have the right to tell anybody who's using it without authorization, you need to take this down. As Holly can probably tell you, um, and most victims will tell you, sending out these notices not only is an exhausting and endless process, but very often you're met with indifference and even hostility. Um, there aren't that many websites that are worried about any further action you might take after you send them a takedown notice. So they may just laugh in your face. So even if you happen to be one of the victims who took the picture him or herself and you are able to have the time and the resources to continually send out these notices, there's no guarantee, there's no even real indication that there's going to be an investment in taking those pictures down or taking them down for a couple of days and then just putting them up a, a few days later. How does this issue of revenge porn relate to something we hear a lot about, which is sexting among teenagers especially? Could revenge porn laws be applied to teenagers who are sexting? Well, it could be applied to anyone who engages in non-consensual sexual behavior in the same way that rape laws can apply to minors who commit rape. So it's, I don't think it's any more confusing as far as an issue um, as other sexual abuse laws go. So if you want to send pictures, naked pictures back and forth, you should be allowed to do that, I would say, as a teenager, and you should be allowed to do that as an adult as well. And there's been some really misguided uses of child pornography laws to try to punish people for sending or receiving consensually these kinds of images. The line really should be that there's a difference between consensual sexual activity and non-consensual sexual activity. And the fact that you're a minor when you engage in non-consensual sexual activity shouldn't really be a defense. We've done some shows on internet privacy and the expectation of privacy on the internet, and it seems to me to be antithetical to think that anything that gets put on the internet or sent through the internet can expect it to be private, just based on the reality. Do people still have an expectation of privacy, Holly, when they send naked pictures of themselves on the internet? I think that you should have an expectation of privacy when you're sending it through email. Because unless the person on the other end exposes it or unless somebody hacks into your email, then there shouldn't be a reason that it, it would get out online. If you're posting it to something like Twitter or Facebook, then you know, you're putting it out there. So there is no expectation of privacy. If I could add something to that, I'd, I'd like to suggest that I don't think it's true that people don't think they have privacy on the Internet, whether that means we're talking about email or Google searches or what have you. In fact, a lot of the pushback against NSA surveillance, for instance, has been against this idea that if you've ever released any information to any other entity that somehow you no longer have any expectation of privacy in it, that obviously can't be true. I mean, we send out our credit card information, we write emails to our lawyers, we send over medical records. All of that happens virtually and in person nowadays. And I don't think anyone really tries to argue that all of that means that we've destroyed our expectation of privacy in any of those materials. So I think you have to look again at the question of what's the context here. If I send something to my lawyer, he doesn't get to put it on Facebook. He doesn't get to post it to YouTube. And I think we all understand that. So it seems like sometimes we think sex should be treated differently, but I don't really see any compelling reason to do so. Well, we've come all too quickly to the end of our show. Well, uh, we just did a show on the NSA. We did just do the show last week on the NSA snooping on attorney emails. But we've come to near the end of our show, and we want to give each of you time to give your final thoughts before we close the program and also invite you to uh, let our listeners know how they can follow up with you and find out more about the work that you're doing. So, uh, Holly Jacobs, let's start with you. 
first off, I just want to say thanks so much for having me on, guys. This has been a really interesting conversation. If you're a victim that's listening, I just want to let you know it's not your fault. Don't blame yourself because I certainly did at first and there's nothing but a loss of energy in doing that. And visit endrevengeporn.org. We have tons of resources up there for you and you can reach out to us if you just want to talk and, and get some advice on how to get through this. If you're interested in volunteering for our organization, visit cybercivilrights.org. And there's a button there where you can visit and see the kind of positions that we have open right now. We, there's just a handful of us that are working on this and we are making some great headway, as you can see. And we could certainly use some more hands on deck And lastly, if you're interested in donating, you can give tax-deductible donations through either of the sites, the End Revenge Porn or Cyber Civil Rights Initiative site. So we're trying to build a support center for victims where they can get formal counseling and we can implement a hotline to really help them get through this while there aren't any avenues for justice for them. So yeah, please visit and uh, thanks again. Thank you, Holly. And uh, Marianne Franks, your closing thoughts. Yes, I'd just like to take the opportunity to say that I really hope that these kinds of conversations help people think through what privacy actually means to them and what confidentiality means to people. That if we really did lose sight of the idea that we can have private conversations and transactions with people, that we'd be living in a completely transparent society where we would never get to do anything, say anything, act in any way that couldn't be monitored and then publicized for everyone to see, whether that's really the world we want to live in. So for understanding as a society that maybe that's not a great world to live in, to have to look over your shoulder about every possible thing you could say or do, that we apply the same logic here because the intimate details of someone's sexual life are certainly a part of our notions of free speech and association for people in their personal lives, and that we should try to take some stand here to say that, yes, people have every right to expect privacy in certain confidential transactions, and a world without that would actually be a pretty bad world. And as to what people can do, please read the actual statutes, right? We would love to hear particular improvements or critiques if you've read the actual language, which is almost always available publicly. Um, Hear your feedback if you're an expert, if you have some viewpoints that you would like to offer to contact me by email or through Twitter or through the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative page. I'd love to hear from people, and we'd always love to hear from people in terms of creative ideas about changing social norms and technological innovations and that whole other apparatus that we need to think about in terms of trying to achieve new understandings on this subject and others. People can contact me via email. It's probably best. That's mafranks at law.miami.edu. And I'm on Twitter um, at ma underscore franks. Great. And thank you both very much for being on the program. Bob? Yeah, thanks a lot to both of you for taking the time to be with us. And I should point out that the endrevengeporn.org website actually has a lot of information, but also actually has, uh, Marianne Franks, your guide to uh, the legislation and and your suggested language uh, for uh, state and federal uh, legislation. Very useful document. This brings us down to the point in the show where we have 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off by the buzzer. Uh, Craig, you get to go first this week. Wow. Well, my particular thoughts are that, yes, we need to get some federal legislation and we need to have, hopefully, someone can create an app or some type of program that can find these posted pictures that are inappropriate and get them taken down to protect the victims. Obviously, as Professor Franks points out, we do need some state legislation to handle some solely intrastate issues. 
But we've got a long way to go. But I, I also think that it is unrealistic to expect that there's privacy on the internet from everything that we've covered on this show and our regular listeners will have heard most of those programs. It's tough. Well, Craig, I... I'm not sure I agree with you on the privacy issue. I I understand the implications that it's hard to uh, guarantee privacy, but I think functionally speaking, certainly uh, email and other forms of communication should be, we have a right to consider them private. I think from what I've read about this and from what I've heard today, I, I feel convinced that legislation is appropriate and required. I don't know enough about it to speak to the legislation. I'm going to study this much more carefully and look at the materials on these sites. Uh, I've learned a lot today and I've been educated a lot today and I, I realize I still have a lot more to learn about this issue and I'm going to try and do that. Well, thanks again to both of our guests. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. It's a really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. And Bob, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.